0: It's Guys, Guys, Radio. Here's your host, Robert
1: Manny. Hello and welcome to Guys, Guys, Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best. Guys, Guys, Radio. I bring you guests that will hopefully inform you and inspire you and empower you. and will help you think and feel and hopefully act. Guys, Guys, Radio. All good stuff here. We got a great show today. We got I call it the two mats today because we've got two gentlemen with the first name Matthew, and one is a one is a investigative reporter who's written a book about it. His name is Matthew Schwartz, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. He's going to do a deep dive into his life in uh, the New York area, I believe, in uh, Tampa, out in Phoenix. Matthew Schwartz, years of reporting on TV and in print. And you know, the investigative reporters really do the deep dive and get in people's faces and stuff, and it ain't fake news, they do a good job. And uh, Matt's a throwback, and he's a good guy, and uh, and I know him, and he's a friend. So, Matthew Schwartz is here, and also we have another Matt who's also a terrific guy. I got to meet him uh, before the interview, and I really connected with him, I really like him, Matthew. Immerseian. He is the founder and CEO of Everyday Matters. He's written this book called You Matter, Learning to Love Who You Really Are. And it's a really it's about helping people uh, create their life purpose, meaning, and service, and really get comfortable with who they are. So two guys, two guys, guys, two mats on Guys Guys Radio today. I can't wait to get started. But first, let's touch a little bit on what's going on. Here we are in 2020, and like, wow, what a year. Things are really off the rails. So we're just kind of slowly turning uh, the corner to get out of the uh, the lockdown and the quarantine from the coronavirus. Slowly, things are opening up, s- slowly and steadily. And then right on top of that, we have the uh, unfortunate uh, tragedy with the George Floyd murder, uh, alleged murder—we're going to call it because uh, people do have to stand trial—and the protests. And here I am in San Diego, and I thought it was going to be super chill here, It's just like a vacation town. But no, it's a big city. And yesterday, um, there was big protests during the day, and everybody was peaceful and uh, doing their thing. And then at nighttime, it things changed, and there was a lot of face-offs that I saw from where I live. Uh, in in the downtown area in the Columbia District, I saw a lot of face-offs between the protesters and the police, and things uh, were starting to disperse, and then things got uh, tough. And uh, I went outside on my deck, and I'm 20 floors up, and there was pepper spray. I thought it was tear gas, and I was like, how does tear gas get all the way up here? But it was pepper spray from—somebody told me this today—that was coming down from choppers overhead— and apparently, there was some looting here in town. And as I walk through the city today, um, actually riding my bike through, I had to run an errand. Uh, they were boarding up the Fifth Avenue, which is kind of the main shopping district in in uh, in downtown San Diego. You know, this Fifth Avenue here, they have Quicksilver. And Fifth Avenue in New York, they've got Chanel. So it's a little bit different. But uh, still, it's a major shopping area. And everything is getting boarded up because they're anticipating uh, some uh, rough times again tonight. So everybody... Uh, We've all been under stress, and we have to have our voices heard, and you can peacefully protest, and you want to make a point. We've got to make decisions on our own because, obviously, there's a uh, leadership at the federal level has really been challenged, and I don't know if we're getting clear-cut messages uh, as to how we handle this as a people and how we unify So America, the people have to come together on their own by respecting people who peacefully protest, understanding the situation and why people are upset, and also being respectful of one another and those who are innocent and respecting their property. So I hope you all do the right thing. So Guys, Guys Radio, we've got the two mats. We're going to get started right away. It's Guys Guy Radio. I have a couple of great guests today. One of them is uh, Matthew Amerzian. He's a really cool guy. He's very successful in business, in the entertainment business in Hollywood and LA. And he had a epiphany based on certain experiences he had, and now he's off on a new direction and has a lot to share with us about. The fact that you matter, and I matter, and we matter, and the name of his book is You Matter. He's the author of uh, another book, Every Monday uh, Matters, and so everything that matters is going through Matt Amersian. Let me tell you a little <laughs> bit about him. He's founder and CEO of Every Monday Matters, uh, Monday Matters, a nonprofit committed to helping people and organizations understand how much and why they matter, the programs have been utilized by some of America's largest corporations and more than 2 million students in 49 states and seven countries. Wow. Matt's life and world-changing work has been featured all over media, Oprah.com, Today Show, Hallmark, Bass Company, everywhere, and he's a really cool guy. So thanks so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. Matthew Amersian. Thank you, sir. I'm happy to be a Guys Guy. Right. <laughs> so... Um, Let's start uh, for the. Let's just get started at the beginning. What happened to you? You were very successful in the entertainment business, very successful in the music business, and then things started to fall apart. And then you resurrected and had a new view on life. And now you're sharing that with people and helping them know that they are more important than they may have thought they are.
0: Well, you just uh, you just shared my last 20 years of my life, <laughs> and that's our show. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. So. Uh, you know, that's just it. You know, I, I, uh, I came out of graduate school. You know, I, I, I thought, I felt like I did everything right. You know, I grew up in a great family, went to college, went to grad school, got my master's and found myself working in the music industry, which you don't need an MBA really to work in the music industry, at least where I was working. Uh, and I started in an artist management helping bands uh, get signed. And, and my best friend was the lead singer of a band that just signed to Sony records and John Paul Jones produced their album. And, and that's they just needed a manager, so I said yes, and that journey started there. But then I ended up uh, getting hired by Robert Kardashian, mm-hmm. and Robert was a very successful music man, and and so I became his vice president, and then eventually senior vice president of his music marketing company. And then all of a sudden, I found myself just living that entourage lifestyle. like the HBO TV show, you know, it was mm-hmm. it was um, fun. fun, running hard, <laughs> running fast, lots of fun. And and the truth is, you know. I'm not proud to say this and and um but as a as a guy, how I defined success at that time was you know making lots of money and having a house in the hills and and having nice things and being single and dating you know and and that was kind of my life and and then, on a Monday morning, I woke up to get ready to go to work as as we all i guess used to do, not right now, mm-hmm. and uh and I ended up uh, having a massive breakdown. I thought I was having a heart attack. It turns out it was a panic attack, which led to, you know, chronic anxiety disorder and depression. And, and you know, this dream life that I thought I had built for myself, like checking off all the boxes of success, uh, clearly uh, um, none of it mattered like I thought it did.
1: Now, what, did was this all a surprise to you when this happened, or were were there underlying issues? Looking back now and say, I should have seen the signposts there that things weren't weren't going the right way. That everything just kind of exploded. And that's was a, there a tipping point? Was there a uh,
0: did you have an inciting incident that uh, created all of this? That's a great point. You know, um, looking back, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. There were moments where I was, I found myself like at a at a Hollywood pool party up in the Hollywood Hills, and. And all of a sudden, I, find, I started feeling off, but I didn't know why I was off. I found myself um, at an event uh, in Vegas. The same thing happened to me there. Actually, the night before my Monday breakdown, I was on a blind date with with a woman, and I ended up having to leave the blind date. I didn't, but I didn't know what it was. It just something felt amiss to me. But that Monday morning, it was that feeling times like a hundred. Mm-hmm. It, it was like one of those. It flattened me, and. So in some ways, I was blindsided. In hindsight, I think it was trying to get my attention. You know, there's that, that joke, and you've heard it a million different ways. You know, you know, God, where were you? And he's like, I sent you a helicopter. I sent you a boat. I sent you a car. Exactly. Uh, I think that he probably sent me all those things. And, and finally, my body just said, enough's enough. Mm-hmm. So right after that, so you have your kind of breakdown,
1: what happened, and then how did you kind of pull it together again? Were there any things that, things that happened, people that helped, uh, uh, sure. epiphanies you may have had to say, okay, this is something I can learn from, this is something I can grow from, this is something I can share to help others?
0: Absolutely, man. You know, and I'm, I'm lucky. Honestly, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate because I was able to get some great help. You know, and processing mental health stuff on your own is just, you can't do it. And I was introduced to an amazing therapist. Uh, I call her my expensive friend. I think everyone needs an expensive friend. And, you know, in the beginning, it was just trying to like plug all the holes, you know, because the water was coming on the ship and it was crisis. And I was having days where I was thinking about taking my own life and, and things were not good. And but eventually, once we studied the ship, then we kind of moved into okay, how do we start living life moving forward? First thing I looked at was probably my relationships and which ones were serving me, which ones were healthy. Um, even you know with my 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 family, uh, like redesigning those relationships to be even better than they already were. And then the final piece was my therapist told me one day she said that Matt, I want you to know that you're not going to ultimately feel better until you know what it means to live a life that's not about you. And it was really that that motto that she gave me, which really changed everything. Cause I, you know, I was I was the one not feeling well. I was the one working in a narcissistic industry. I was the one probably a bit narcissistic myself. And also in this person to say it's not about you, you know, well, then what could this be about? And so every Saturday I, I had to go do something not about me, like pick up litter, feed homeless people, read the elderly, paint over graffiti. And it was this weekly dose of doing something not about me, that was the key that unlocked, like, oh, so this is why I matter. Now, how did you, this was your
1: therapist who mentioned that make it not about you? That's right. You, usually therapists, they, they do a lot of listening, but the fact that your therapist had this insight that's, and was so helpful, that's fantastic. So that's one point. The other is, so how did you get started on the process of uh, service then? Like you just said, okay, I'm going to go work at the homeless shelter tonight, or what, what happened?
0: Well, you know that that's a great question. You know, the funny thing is, is that where I really found my my home was in picking up litter. And you know, it's funny, like you know, we, we want to make a difference in the world, but sometimes it seems so overwhelming. Like, how do I get involved? There's you know, so many problems. What can I do? And I just found out that walking out my front door with rubber gloves on and and, and grocery bags in my in my belt loop or trash bags, I just would go pick up litter for a couple hours. I was in L.A. Uh, everyone was still asleep. And I knew the Meals on Wheels people, the dog walkers, and it was actually peaceful. So I just made it super simple, mm-hmm. you know. I no one knew what I was going through as well, so I kind of had to find my way in a way I felt comfortable with because my struggles uh, were not public. You know, I, I had a reputation to protect, right? So I had to find it in my own way, and and it was just in the simple little things where I found such peace. Now, uh, work wise. How did you then,
1: when you started to know more about yourself and what your purpose might be, and that things, the lens that you were seeing things through was changing? How did you then deal with uh, the corporate life? Because the corporate life just keeps going, and they're like, "Matt, this is a due date on this, how do we sign this band? We've got a gig coming. What? How do you deal with that?" Because you know, a lot of times when we start to know more, uh, we see our friends, our family, and our colleagues, and you know, you you think like. I'm in a different place than they are, and it's not one of ego. It's like I'm just in a different place, but yeah. I have to I have to make sure that I keep that going. in some I don't want to feel superior or anything. And then there's expectations of me. How did you manage all that?
0: You know, I'm. I mean, I'll be honest. You know, I had to use medication in the beginning for sure. You know, I was I got on antidepressants, I had Xanax if I needed it, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but ultimately. You know, I I feel like I got to such a low, and I was so scared that I knew that something had to change. And so I still did my work. I enjoyed my work, frankly. You know, it was creative, it was interesting, it was dynamic. But um, there were other changes that I just knew I had to make, and and I had to start saying no to stuff that I used to say yes to. And and I got judged for it mightily. You know, I started getting called goody tissues. Oh, here comes Matt. You know, Mister Change the World guy, and And, and, you know, I actually, you know, there's a lot of friends I used to have that Mm -hmm. I don't anymore. And I had to be willing to say, you know what, that life, it's got to go. I'm done with it.
1: You know, I can can relate to that because when I started doing this guy's guy thing, I would have some friends and colleagues would say, oh, well, a guy's guy wouldn't do this or wouldn't do that. And start to get pointed at. And now they don't do it anymore. Right. And uh, that's good. That's like a validation. But I had to validate it myself and just say, just keep going, keep going.
0: So, the book- you, know what, you know what else, go, too go ahead, go ahead. To Robert, is that, you know, clearly you've made a you made a choice to make a change in your life to do something special yes. and good and to serve others. Right. When people around you make that choice, it causes you to have to look in the mirror at yourself mm-hmm. to say, what am I doing? Uh, you know, am I just on this pleasure cruise through life or actually is what Robert doing over there more like how I should be spending my time as well? Mm-hmm. And so it causes this self-reflection for people. And in the beginning, they're going to fight against that just out of self-preservation, not because God, they're judging
1: you. What I have found is I have a lot of friends who they have the same habits and lifestyle as we did when we got out of college. Drink, eat a lot of meat, play golf and all that stuff. Just, But nothing's changed. Right. And then at a certain point, now they're getting into the age where and the time where they're going to get laid off or retirement or whatever. They, A lot of guys, health-wise, particularly, they start to look at, oh, wow, this is going to happen. I better make some changes. But my advice to those people would be, don't wait till it's too late. I had a health scare six years ago. I was out running. I had amazing pain in my sides. I laid down. I had a one-year-old son. And I ended up getting two robotic surgeries five weeks later. Um, on my kidneys. And that was my wake-up call that said, okay, you know what? You want to keep going the same way? This is a chance. This is 2.0. How have you seen that with your friends coming through? Like, we both kind of had our epiphanies. What do you see out there, and how can we help other men?
0: Yeah, well, I think the thing that you both of us would say is that we never want to have people hit rock bottom, right? And right. you know, whether you're lying there on the ground thinking you're going to die, possibly, you don't know what this is, same with me, what I was going through, we don't want people to hit rock bottom. you know But there's no shadow of a doubt that this life we've been living and the way that we thought we were supposed to live it, as men or as people in general, it's not how we're supposed to live our lives. if If we think for a second that we are brought into this world to amass a lot of stuff and to make a lot of money and to just have fun all the time. That's such a narcissistic and egotistic way to think about life. Like We're not here for ourselves. We're here to serve others. And, and I think that if we all woke up every morning and said, you know what, today, how can I make the world a better place? How could I serve one person? Mm-hmm. Um, if we all did that, all nearly 8 billion people, I mean, imagine what our world would be like. It would be completely different, and we would all be more fulfilled than we've ever been.
1: Guys, Guys Radio, my special guest, Matt Amersian, the new book is You Matter, Learning to Love Who You Really Are. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your first book, the big book that came out, Every Monday Matters. How did you come up with the concept? How did you get that together when you presented it to people? What did they say?
0: Yeah, so, you know, again, I was, I was doing this weekly dose, right, that I was doing on Saturdays. But when um, I got the idea to write the book, I wanted to keep that kind of weekly rhythm going because it worked for me and and I got to the point where I was looking forward to that day of the week to actually go do something not about myself. So I also have always hated that people don't like Mondays. I think it's just I just think it's right. stupid. And mm-hmm. we name restaurants after thank God it's Friday. It's the weirdest concept to me. So <laughs> what if what if we started our weeks off inspired and we set the tone for the week to 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 be amazing and to make a difference and impact others. So that book was a simple here's 52 things you can do throughout the year, every one Monday at a time to, uh, to make a difference in your life mm-hmm. and other people's lives. And then that book then all of a sudden became much more than just a book. And about a month after it came out, I received an email from a woman who said that because of my book, she saved someone from committing suicide. And wow. when, I, when I got that email, uh, that's the day I left the music industry okay. and said, I'm done. All right. So the the new book, let's get to the new book. You matter, yep.
1: learning to love who you really are. And it's broken into three sections. There's I matter, you matter, we matter. Tell us about the concept and the inspiration behind the new book.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, my my first books were were really prescriptive, like here's something you can do every Monday of the year. This one I wanted to get a little bit behind the the why of it and and um I believe that that when we start to live life through these three lenses of I matter, you matter, and we matter, everything in life changes. And the I matter is certainly who am I, the good, the bad, the ugly of that, my feelings, my emotions, and processing me, and also being there for myself as well. Um, the you matter is understanding that we're powerful people. We have the the power to impact other people around us through our actions, our words, our thoughts. And then the we matter is that you know we're in this together and that life is a we thing. And we're all connected, and so I wanted to help people see life through those three lenses. And it's one of the one of the things why I always struggle that I find my books in the self help section, Mm -hmm. because as you asked earlier about my therapist, um, we're all looking to feel better and find ways to to enjoy our life more. But it's not always about the arrows pointing towards ourselves, and that's I think the big misnomer of self help. Sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself is not focus on yourself that's Uh, great insight but but we haven't we so many people say i have to learn how to love myself before i can love other people but you can also learn to love yourself by loving other people
1: okay so the three sections i matter is kind of about self-worth you matter about awareness expanding knowledge and people we matter thriving community talk to us a little bit about how that's broken out and those steps and how they all work together
0: absolutely so um, you know, for, for as long as I've been thinking about this idea of I matter, you matter, we matter, and all of our programs at Every Monday Matters, the nonprofit, um, our education program, our corporate programs, they're all the underpinning of all those programs is the same thing. I matter, you matter, we matter. So I've been working with this for years. And what's interesting about it is I always saw it as these concentric circles where the I matters in the middle, the you matters, that next ring around you, and the we matters, the bigger ring. When I was writing this book. When I got to the end of the book, I realized that for nearly 10 years, I've been seeing those circles the wrong way. And what the book revealed to me was they're actually all equally important. And so instead of being concentric circles, they're more of a Venn diagram where Mm -hmm. the I matter, the you matter, and the we matter all all overlap. And somewhere in the middle of there where we all overlap is where we live our best life. And at any point in time, you you might be a, a parent who's home now and your kids are home and you're homeschooling And in some ways you could say that's me doing a we matter or an I matter or you matter sort of thing. I'm there to serve my my son or daughter. But at the same time, it's also an I matter thing because hopefully you're getting fulfilled as well as you're there to be with your kids. And Mm -hmm. before maybe you never had that opportunity because you were at work or something. So they all relate to each other. We move in and out of them constantly, but it's just having the awareness that they exist.
1: Okay, let me throw a couple of terms at you. Do a little lightning round here, and let me get your take. Uh, okay. Gratitude, gratitude. For me, it's uh, it, the more I'm appreciative, the more my life gets better. What's your
0: thoughts? Absolutely, and and, and I just wrote about this actually yesterday. As, I finding mean, gratitude in times like this, uh, which can be very very hard, but. Um, You know, there are things out there that maybe we didn't have time to notice before when life was faster, when life looked different, our routines were different. Just this morning, I walked out in the backyard and I noticed all our our rose bushes are starting to bloom. I I would never see that before. Mm -hmm. But it's like, wow, like I'm actually watching spring happen. Uh, Usually spring just flies by me next thing I know it's fall or summer or winter, right? And so, yes, let's be grateful, especially for the small things. And also, especially now for me is I'm so grateful for the people who have the courage um, to step into the front lines of this virus, our healthcare workers. Um, the things that they are doing to protect humanity, to me, is just, it's beyond. Heroic, heroic. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely,
1: yeah. Okay, fear. Um, I think uh, people really have to confront their fear and there's fear of just things in general of lack but there's
0: also fear of
1: letting go. Talk to us about fear uh, bifurcated that way.
0: Yeah, that fear of letting go was a big one for me. Uh I, I definitely had control issues. And 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 I that's why a lot of people who actually suffer from anxiety disorder, they will tell you that elevators are hard. Being in their car in traffic, being on airplanes, places where they don't have control, um, it's it's really hard for them because they feel confined. And and for me, um, you know, I had to learn how to let go. You know, my whole life, I had this idea that this was how my life was going to unfold. Like I had written the story in my head of my life, and this is how it should happen. My life, how it actually happened, couldn't have been any different than that story. <laughs> and the sooner I realized that I'm I'm not the author of it all, the, the better I felt instantly.
1: Mm-hmm. As part of that, let me follow up on that point. Um, some say that when you let go, uh, you can kind of create your own life by being in the present. We're so much as we are affected so much by the past, but it's gone, the future hasn't shown up yet. A lot of people don't realize two things. One, the amount of power they have, and two, that they can create their lives moment by moment because the only thing that matters is right now when you come down to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, you know, and it's hard because you run your life out of your head, right? And it's just thinking, thinking, logic, logic. And, and, and I have to be the one that does this. You know, I'm the warrior you know what, not not necessarily the case. There might be bigger forces at play even than you, you know, Mr. Big Strong Warrior, that we can let go of a little bit. And, and there's something very gratifying about letting go. And I'll tell you, Every Monday Matters, our organization, for the first five years after I wrote that first book, we were a for-profit company that I owned. Um, after an experience I had with visiting with some incarcerated people and talking about the ideas of mattering, I realized from them that I'm not supposed to own Every Monday Matters, right. that is supposed to be a nonprofit organization. So I don't own this thing anymore. I work for it. It was the biggest, best decision I've ever made in my entire life for me personally, but also for the organization.
1: I, th- I think it's so amazing that um, you left the corporate life, yet now you're back in the corporate life to consult really with every monday matters and yeah. you've been embraced by the community that i would uh, i would guess initially shunned you when you were going through your metamorphosis
0: yeah ab- absolutely you know in the corporate world it's 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 challenging because ultimately you know the what's the bottom line here and and it's a, it's all a function of leadership and and i've tried so hard to find leaders who truly get this stuff that that corporate social responsibility isn't a responsibility like it's actually a privilege and an honor to serve your people who serve you for countless hours a year, right? And yes, you pay them a paycheck, but it's so much more than that. Like like leaders have a really unique opportunity to serve because they have this focused mass of people there. And so trying to help them understand that, can 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 we show causality between if people are happier, they're better employees, you know, everyone questions like, how do you know if it's really working? Is it really helping our bottom line of our business? You know, Got it. And, and I just have to believe and that people do believe now that, you know what? Happy people produce better results in all parts of their life. And, and if, you. you know, mm-hmm. a thousand percent
1: guys, guys, radio, your host, Robert Manny, my special guest, a real guys guy, Matt Amersian. Um, what's next, Matt? Where can people
0: find you and your book? Yes, sir, thank you. Yeah, so right now as a nonprofit, our education program is thriving and, and we're touching ton, you know millions of students. And now we just launched a brand new home resources section. So now we have free resources for families and parents. For We're teaching live classes for students on Zoom. Um, also the corporate program, um, especially in times like this is a real need for it. And right before the virus hit, we were testing two programs one was a program for assisted living communities because we have elderly and seniors in our country today that don't feel like they matter anymore and they're isolated and they're depressed and they don't feel connected and the same with our incarcerated population where we have men and women who are are, are behind bars and they're told to, to believe that they don't matter so we're looking to pilot some programs there and obviously my new book just came out you know five weeks ago and you know please grab a copy and Go to EveryMondayMatters.org and come check out our work at the nonprofit and and join us.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're welcome back whenever you want. And uh, thanks for being a Guys Guy. And keep up doing the great work you're
0: doing. You too, man. Thank you so much. It's Guys
1: Guy Radio. Guys, Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. As I mentioned, I have a special guest. And truth be told, he is an old, old friend. I actually found a photo of him, myself, and a bunch of other young guys from first grade, from a birthday party. So that's how long I've known our special guest, Matthew Schwartz. But he's not being my guest on the show on Guys, Guys Radio because he's an old friend. It's because He's written a terrific book called Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. Let me tell you a little bit about Matthew Schwartz. He has told approximately 10,000. Can you imagine that? 10,000 stories on television stations across the country for the past four decades. He's won more than 200 awards, including four New York Emmys, four regional Edward R. Murrow Awards for investigative reporting. Some of his most memorable stories included an interview with Son and Sam, the serial killer David Berkowitz. Uh, John Gotti's trial reports on 9-11 from Ground Zero, the crash two months later of the American Airlines flight 587 in Queens, the bombing of Pan Pan Am flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, and hundreds of other reports on corruption, fraud, and government waste. And he also has a lot of very funny pieces he's done for the networks he's worked for. So welcome to Guys, Guys Radio. Matt Schwartz, how are you, Matthew? Thanks for having me, Robert. So let's start right at the beginning. Uh, You're an investigative reporter. You've been wanting for many, many years. How would you define what an investigative reporter is and what should that role actually be, Matt?
2: Well, I think by nature, any reporter does investigative work. Uh, Whether you're doing a general assignment story or a feature, you are investigating something. What we tend to do in my field is uh, give a voice to the voiceless, hold the powerful accountable. And we do that by thorough background checks, fact checking. We spend a lot of time poring over documents. We get a tip from someone. We can't just go on TV and report it, there's a lot of digging to do. You get very familiar with how to do a public records request, how to go to the courthouse or any other government agency and check records. And what we try to do is inform people and, if necessary, expose fraud. What what
1: inspired you to want to follow this career path? You've always, you know, as an old, old friend, you always had a really good gift of gab. You're very sharp, very fast, very bright, and a good communicator. I know that all fits the bill for what you've been doing for your career. But what was it that inspired you to say, I, I want to do this?
2: When I was about 15, I met a friend of my father's named Jim Donnelly, who lived in River Edge, uh, my hometown. and. He uh, was the morning co-anchor on WCBS All News Radio 88 New York City. At that time, sophomore in high school, I was unsure if I wanted to be a lawyer. I even thought of being a coach, and gym teacher. Uh, and then I met Jim Donnelly. And he took me to work at 2.30 in the morning. I went over to his house um, when I didn't have school and then later on during college breaks. And I just got a rush from seeing... This live 24-hour radio station, again, it wasn't TV, but it was radio, and I just got a rush from how these reporters handled breaking news, how how calm they were, how great they were as far as writing pieces and concisely doing so. So that really gave me the bug.
1: Now, how, in your estimation, Matt, how has reporting changed over the course of your career? Obviously, now we're, you know, there's a lot of pushback on reporters with the whole fake news and all of that. But prior to that and leading up to that, how, is, how has it changed being a reporter?
2: In the old days, it was just the fax man, who, what, where, why, when, how. Now you're expected to put yourself in the story um, as far as many, not certainly all, media outlets are concerned. Uh, with all the competition, the hundreds of news choices now, uh, I think it's become more tabloid, more sensationalism. I don't think being old school and doing a solid investigative piece or general assignment piece means that it has to be boring. OK, so it's changed. It's become more opinionated. Look at the late night news. I talk about that in the book, um, you know, CNN, Fox and MSNBC uh, it used to be really right right down the middle, like I still think most local newscasts are. So it's changed, and that's become much more heavily as far as opinion, op-ed-type pieces, and reporter involvement.
1: You think that's part of that is driven by the advent of Fox, where we really didn't, and whether you like Fox or or not, we didn't really have that opinion um, out out front as much as we do now. I mean, I think that uh, you could argue that, you know, maybe CBS... Uh, leaned left uh, for many years, but it seems like Fox was the first one who came right out in front and basically said, this is what we think, and and really didn't have any bones about it.
2: Yes, Roger Ailes saw that there were, in his mind, only liberal broadcast outlets out there, and he said, we're going to represent what he was calling the silent majority, and said that Fox needs to be a, a voice for the conservatives. And I think that is where the really strong opinionated news began.
1: Okay. Let's start at the beginning with your book, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. It's a fun, fast read. It's chock full of really great vignettes about Matt's uh, career as an investigative reporter. Um, how? What inspired you to write the book and what surprised you while you were writing it?
2: You know, for 20 years, Robert, people have been coming up to me, started in New York, saying, what's the rest of that story or whatever happened to that guy? Or what were you thinking when you did that story? They're asking me inside stuff, stories I couldn't tell on TV. They said, you have to write a book. So I said, yeah, right. I'll write a book, you know, when I'm retired. And then somebody said, no, you You should do it now. I had kind of a mentor in this process who I spoke to her authors group in 2014, and she kind of kept after me. And the best advice she gave me was write a page a day. So I started to think because I started taking notes for the book, I should say, probably 15 years ago, at least. And I started taking notes. And then when she said write a page a day, the idea of writing while I'm still working full time, which I'm doing now uh, on the NBC affiliate in Tucson, Arizona, the idea of writing a page a day didn't seem so overwhelming. So I did that. I started in early April. Uh, of 2019, and I did write a page a day. Uh, some days I might have had some writer's block, and I did say half or three quarters of a page, but mainly, mostly a page a day. And on weekends, I would write more. So um, I felt I did in those 10,000 stories, you know, I picked out about 30 or so, 35 stories that were most memorable to me, and I thought they'd be really interesting and informative to the average news viewer. And I wrote this book trying not to make it just for news junkies, people that are really into local news, especially nowadays, where so many people just get their news on demand, streaming on their phones, whatever. So I tried to make it just for the general consumer. I wrote a page a day. I sent it to some friends. I fully expected it to self-publish. It was just a bucket list thing. You know, it's a legacy for my family and friends, not to make a lot of money, not to be on the best sellers list. I was going to pay and get it self-published. And after some friends uh some, some journalists, some well-known journalists who don't know me from a hole in the wall, like Bob Dotson, recently retired from the Today Show and NBC News after 40 years, uh, Mike Taibbi from Dateline and some others, they said, you know, this is pretty good. Maybe you should just try sending it to a traditional publisher. I mean, who gets published from the first shot? So I sent right. it to a small independent publisher that someone— Recommend. And I get an email a few days later from the publisher. They want to offer me a contract. And I even got a small advance. So that's kind of surreal.
1: Let's get into some of the stories. Uh, again, Guys, Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. My special guest is Matthew Schwartz. We're talking about his book, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. So let's start with the big one Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. How did you get him? And how did that go for you?
2: I was reading in the newspaper that his. Mandatory parole hearing after 25 years of being behind bars was coming up. Of course, it was just the legal uh, requirement. There's no way that David Berkowitz, with six life sentences, was going to get parole, but they had to do the hearing. So I thought, yeah, you know, maybe he'll want to talk. So uh, due to the uh, time constraints of local news and uh, them, you know, wanting me to do as many stories as possible, uh, Channel 9 wouldn't give me the time to go up there. about my producer up there being a maximum security prison in upstate New York when I was working for Channel Line, which was then in Seacaucus, New Jersey. My producer, Ethan Dreilinger, went up there without a camera. Berkowitz wanted to get a feel for what we wanted. And uh, he said, okay, I'll start you know, sending Matthew some emails, I mean, some regular mail. And he did, and we became pen pals. Uh, he was thinking about it, and I told him, look, you say whatever you want, but I'm gonna have to ask you some tough questions, of course. Uh, but he wanted to get out there to the loved ones of um, the, the people he murdered. This is the seven uh, the families of the seven people he murdered. He shot thirteen people total, and that um, that he would um, does not deserve to be paroled. You know, he was uh, born again, and he wanted to talk about that. And he, after exchanging letters for several uh, six weeks or so, he agreed to the on camera interview.
1: And, now, when you um, when when you interviewed him, Matt, at the end of that, did you think like? This guy's certifiably cuckoo, or this guy's really bad news, and he's faking the whole thing, or wow, he's really sincere, and I think he is, uh, you know, has remorse. What What was your take from after going through the process with him and sitting with him face to face?
2: I thought he was remorseful. He wasn't that well spoken, but he was. I mean, he was articulate enough. I, I think he was remorseful. Uh, I think he realized that he does not did not deserve parole, but also, as the legendary detective Joe Coffey said in his interview with me, Coffey, one of the cops who took Berkowitz's con- confession, uh, Berkowitz knew or thought, I think, that someone would take a shot at him if he ever got out. That's what the cop thought, um, and I thought that probably was true, that he didn't even want to get out. As it was, he had a three-inch scar on his neck. That I noticed right away because when he was in Attica before he went to this Shawangunk State uh, Prison later, uh, when he was in Attica in 1979, someone stabbed him in the neck. So I didn't think he. I think he didn't want to get out. I also felt, being that he still was narcissistic, I think he liked being David was in prison, and I think he liked being what he called himself then, not the son of Sam, but the son of Hope. And he gave classes and religion, and I think he liked being what he thought was a big shot in prison. And, you know, I write in the book about how he smiled when he was arrested. Hundreds of cameras were there that August night in 1978. He seemed to really dig the attention which he had never received in his life.
1: Tell us about some other celebrity uh, encounters that you had. I, I've, In my career in advertising, I, I met a lot of celebrities, and I found most of them, if you were respectful to them, they were— Pretty decent. And of course, you've always run into some people who are not that nice, but that's like that in anything. What was your uh, experience working with celebrities and being on the reporting side of covering them?
2: Yeah, you know, Robert, before I was an investigative reporter, which you don't start out as, you know, you have to earn your investigative chops. I was a general assignment reporter. I covered all kinds of stories. I did a series for Channel 9 when I was a general assignment reporter in 1985. We called it Sinatra to Springsteen, and it was about famous musicians who came out of New Jersey or lived m- much of their lives in New Jersey. And I tell some stories in the book about musicians. Uh, the time I was uh, interviewing Dizzy Gillespie, the legendary, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, jazz trumpet players ever. And I picked him up at his house by his request in Englewood, New Jersey. It was a 20 foot long gold trumpet on his lawn. But I'm driving him. I'm driving him to then Times Square when Channel Nine was still in Times Square in '85. It didn't move to Secaucus till uh, summer or spring of '86. And in the middle of the drive, I mean, I, I I was thrilled when he said, "Hey man, you mind giving me a lift? I got a, I got a recording session in the city." I was thrilled. I figure I'll pre-interview him. It's so cool. I mean, I'm driving him, and, and on the West Side Highway, he asked me if I mind if he lights up a joint. And that may seem tame now, but 1986, five or five, I believe, when you're a a reporter at your dream job for two years and you don't really want to smoke weed on the job. And you're just this guy that knows me for five minutes, this legend, I thought that was a cool, funny story. I'd never told it until the book or I told it after he passed away because I just thought it's not relevant. It's invasion of the guy's privacy. And as I write in the book, musicians getting high is hardly news. But I always thought that was cool that such a famous guy so laid back would say to a reporter, a stranger he met five minutes ago, hey, man, let's get high. And it was kind of awkward, to be honest with you. Um, Another story I like is um, when the legendary bar owner – now, this is going to be for, you know, baby boomers. This is not for uh, the young ones. But when when Shore, a legendary bar owner in New York, died – it was a slow news day. I was a rookie at WCBS Radio. I was a gopher. And the big boss Lou Adler, the co-anchor in Morning Drive, and, and the news director said, hey, we, we gotta get somebody on the air who knows Toots Shore. Now, Toots Shore, Bernard Tootshore, owned what was called America's, you know, most famous bar, saloon, he liked to call it, in, in Midtown right. Manhattan. And all you know, Sinatra went there, Joe DiMaggio went there, mobsters, all kinds of actors. And Jackie Gleason was a regular and a good of Shores. My uncle, who was on the periphery of fame, Irving Fields, as a, as a piano player, lived near and knew Gleason in Florida, in the Inverary area. So I called my uncle. Now, this is about 7.30 in the morning. And I said, can you, can you have Gleason, you know, call me or give me his phone number, you know, permission, because they're best friends and took Shores' side. And so, you know, a few minutes later, I'm calling my uncle calls me back. Yeah, you can call Gleason. Here's his number. So I'm dialing Jackie Gleason. I'm 22 years old. I'm a rookie in radio. I'm a huge fan of the honeymooners. You know, to this day. And I'm shaking, literally. And then, being a technical uh, idiot, worried. Once he agrees, he s- says, this a raspy voice." Yeah. Okay. I'll talk about him. And Gleason, a late, you know, re- <laughs> renowned reveler, late night reveler. This is eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, now I'm nervous about. Properly transferring the call to our producer, who's then going to patch it into the control to the studio for the guys to interview Gleason. Anyway, it went great. He gave a great interview. And then Lou Adler, a man who was not one to falsely praise anyone, even reporters on air, actually said, how do you get Gleason? And somebody said, Schwartz did it. And he comes up and pats him in the back. goes, good job. Well, you know, that's a big deal. When you're 22, when you're at your dream job, even though you're a gopher
1: fantastic. Um, How about um you met Billy Joel, Joel I think
2: oh, Billy the Billy Joel story in the book? yep, you remember that one where I, yes. I, 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 we're going we're going you want me to tell you that one tell, tell our listeners So we're doing a story in March of around two thousand about people in the affluent uh, area of the Hamptons in New York um, not renting houses because the economy and the house is very expensive to rent. There was a big down. So, my photographer and I go out there, and my photographer happened to be a renter, uh, a summer renter, shared a house with several guys in the Hamptons. He goes, You know, Billy Joel hangs out right near this office where we're going to interview this realtor. I said, Yeah, this cold, dreary March day, what are the chances of seeing Billy Joel? So, we get out to the Hamptons, about two, two, two and a half hour drive from Channel 9. And I said to my photographer, Why don't you get some beauty shots, some postcard shots at the marina, some nice boats, et cetera? I'll go, you know, warm up the interviewee and get some background, and I'll meet you there in 15 minutes. So two minutes after my photographer drops me off on the sidewalk, I'm taking some notes. I'm looking at the businesses. I'm writing down names of businesses, of business owners I might want to interview. Who pulls up in a silver Mercedes, no entourage, with a peak coat and jeans on? It's Billy Joel. He's walking right towards me. I couldn't believe it. And then my eyesight was good, and I knew it was him. So (laughs) I, I right away, and honestly, I don't remember having a cell phone then. I think it probably did. It could have been a walkie-talkie, but any event, I get my cameraman. I say, Billy Joel's here. He doesn't believe me. I said, Will you please come here? I'm not kidding, because you know I don't know if this Billy Joel's going to want to talk. Right. If he does, if he's going to want to wait. So so I make some small talk with him, and he says, "Eh, I look kind of grubby today. You know, he had a five-day growth, whatever. I go, you look fine. It'd be so nice to you. And then he says, okay. So my photog, you know, it was like a couple minutes away, so he's not there yet. So I start telling Billy how I saw him in concert three times and, you know, my memories from those shows. And he does a great interview with me. Then I call the assignment desk because I was worried about the story being dry. I call the assignment desk. I go, well, the story started off pretty well. I just interviewed Billy Joel. And then they didn't believe me. But then I heard the assignment editor, you know, yell to the newsroom that I got him. And so that was fun. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, a guy who was not very friendly to reporters one night was Art Garfunkel. I was covering the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. I believe that year was at the Waldorf Astoria. And he, we were like pigs in a pen. We're outside. This is before really it started, because the, one, the, the groups that were being inducted, they held press conferences in, in a ballroom. And then the other just people that were either in it or just weren't being inducted, just the attendees, they had to walk past the reporters. And there was a, you know, the, the old velvet robe and we we're cordoned off. And Garfunkel gets out of his limo, the much younger woman, kudos to him, if you wanna say that. And he, he, he walks up to us and he just stops. Like he, he comes over to us like he's gonna do an interview and he stops on a dime and does this big laugh and just walks away and goes inside. And I didn't think that was very funny. Like you know, as I like write in the rub, book,
1: rubbing it in, right? Like, yeah, um, like I'm cool, and you, you guys can't talk to me. You,
2: yeah, you don't have to talk to reporters, but don't like make a joke out of you know right. being a jerk about it. So I turn to the reporters. He goes in. I go. I go. He hasn't had a hit in many years. Maybe that's his new version of the sound of silence. <laughs>
1: that's a good one. So let's uh, let's do like a little right uh, lightning round, Matt. I know you're quick, so I want to get a couple more questions in here. One, um, who would be your ultimate get?
2: Now. I would probably say right now, I'd like I'd love to know what Barack Obama is thinking about current events. I, I would say right now, uh, Barack Obama, former President Obama.
1: okay. Toughest part of the job be an investigative reporter? Because, you know, you talked about a couple of celebrity things. We got a sense as to, okay, you got to be careful. You got to be smart. Everything has to work in timing. But you have been in your career as an investigative reporter. And again, I'm talking with Matt Schwartz. His book is Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. Matthew has really had to go up against people who were doing not so good things. So tell us about the toughest part of the job and You know, you've had to deal with politicians and slimy business people and et cetera. What's been the toughest part of the job?
2: Coming up with the stories. Once you get the story and the elements, of course, the confrontation, trying to find the guy, if there is a bad guy, which there usually is in my line of work. But coming up with the story is the hardest thing. I find the execution, getting the elements and writing are all easier than actually coming up with a story that's important that the people should know about and they'll want to know about. Fantastic. That, that's, that's the toughest thing.
1: Okay. Um, tell us, Matt, uh, first, first of all, uh, once again, the book is Confessions of an Investigative Reporter, Matthew Schwartz. It's fantastic, it's fast, it's tasty, it's got bite-sized chunks of information and so many vignettes about his experience as an investigative reporter. Where can people find out more about you, Matt, and also get the book?
2: Uh, the, web, the book is coming out May 26, but is available now to pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and IndieBooks.org. But on my website, MatthewSchwartzBook.com, there are buttons that you just press. You know, it comes up the link. It's linked to pre-order. So MatthewSchwartzBook.com, and it's also on Amazon uh, and Barnes & Noble and Indie.org right now. All three websites um, available to pre-order.
1: All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, my friend. And uh, Matthew Schwartz, Confessions of an Investigative Reporter. Pick up the book. Matt, you're my buddy and you're also a guy's guy. So, so nice to talk with you today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Robert. I really appreciate it.
1: It's Guy's Guy Radio. Two great interviews with two mats, Matt Emersian, Matthew Schwartz. And I think we learned from Matt Emersian that it's all important to be yourself, be comfortable in your own skin, and the way you do that is by first loving yourself. From Matthew Schwartz, I think we learned that, you know, it's not all fake news out there. There's some hard working investigative reporters who are really out there chasing down stories on our behalf for us so respect them and try to try to be fair when you think about is this real news or fake news or whatever because it's very confusing out there right now and there are good hard-working people guys guys radio we're here every wednesday evening on kcaa at 8 p.m pacific time 102.3 106.5 fm 1050 a.m the show rebroadcast Sundays, and now we're at 6 p.m. on Sunday. So we moved from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. every Sunday. The podcast drops every Thursday. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, BlogTalkRadio, CastBox. KCAA, you can check my website, Robert Manny, the all-new website, robertmanni.com. We've got over 300 blog posts about everything about lo- life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. You can stream the show from there. You can get three free chapters of my novel, which is a source material for everything Guy's Guide, called The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. I think you'll enjoy the website. I'm all over social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now we're launching Guy's Guy's TV via our YouTube channel. So check out Robert Manny, author on YouTube, and you'll see lots of fun videos on there, and also rebroadcasts of what we're calling initially Best of Guys, Guys Radio. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you to my guests. Thank you to my listeners. I'm here to serve, and I really enjoy what I'm doing. So I can't wait to do so many interviews that are coming up. I've got some really cool people that I think you'll enjoy, and thanks so much for supporting the show. So Robert Manny here. Have a great week, and as I always like to say, Guys, guys, finish first.